I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design, bringing you new ideas about management for your design business. This episode features Nathan Brookshire and Paul Davidge from Design Agency and Management. Great tips. Just listen. You'll see. Nathan and Paul founded Design Agency and Management to help creatives grow their firms and still keep their eye firmly on the business at hand. Their stated goal is to help creatives be creative and allow them to manage aspects of the firm traditionally that bind and keep the firm from growing to their full capabilities. This is Nathan Brookshire and Paul Davidge. By the way, are you subscribing to the podcast? If not, please do so you get every episode automatically as soon as they're published. You can find Convo by Design everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. And now you can find us on designnetwork.org, a destination dedicated to podcasts, all things design and architecture. So check it out. Convo by Design is presented by Walker Zenger, a progressive brand that was built on a promise to provide designers, architects, and homeowners with the right materials to do their very best work. That promise is fulfilled every day through a commitment to provide the best ceramic, glass, stone, porcelain, and concrete surfaces and finishes. But it's more than that. Walker Zanger believes strongly in serving the trade with a trade program that makes the specifying process simple with the support you need. They've been staunch supporters of the trade since 1952. In 2020, I launched a series in partnership with Walker Zenger called The Showroom. This intimate interview series showcases some of the very best creatives in the business today. Please join us live or catch every episode recorded so you can enjoy it on your schedule. Walker Zenger is on the cutting edge of design featuring products for every style and architectural feel you can create. So check out any of their showrooms across the country or shop online. WalkerZenger.com for me, this is the best time of year in Palm Springs. Yeah, it was beautiful. It was great. Yeah. It, it's, it's not too hot. I mean, it's, it's not muggy. It's not humid. It's very no. dry. So very it doesn't dry. matter, you know. You, if, you, if you have a swimming pool, you can jump into it. If you've got like a covering, you can hang out and, you know, and it was great. I'm, I'm, I was very upset to be sort of coming back. I bet. Where, did you guys stay at a hotel or at a house? We did an Airbnb. Oh, you did? Um, yeah, we just felt, I mean, I, you know, I think, weirdly, I think, the uh, the Airbnbers are are making sure their houses are cleaner than ever before because of what's going on. So I was I was yeah. less concerned about kind of that side of things, and we always we always take a house me and my family when we go there. It's uh, we never stay in hotels there. It's just we want to have that freedom to, you know, make our own food and and sit by a pool on our own and yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. It's nice yeah no I get it we we had a trip scheduled uh, to La Quinta. Oh, right, great. Yeah. right when this whole thing started it was in may and uh of course it got canceled and we haven't rebooked just because uh, i don't know that vacations are going to be happening in 2020 so right. um, it's just but it's, I, I was saying to my wife like you know we we, we we love we got married in palm springs so we we love that area and you know if we had a place there on March the 11th, we would have just gone there and still be there, you know, like we, we would be able to work from there. It would be a totally different environment. But um, yeah, it, it wasn't really that much of a vacation because we were sort of like working from there, but it, it was more about the change of scenery, you know. Totally. I completely get it. You know, speaking of which, and it's probably a good, maybe just to, to dive into this, curious, did you have an office before or were you working remotely before this whole thing started? 
So we actually um, were working from Neuhaus. Okay. So I don't know if you're familiar with, with a, as, a, as a sort of co-working space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so we, um, we actually uh, sort of had a, had a partnership with Neuhaus. We offered them some uh, workshops to, to, uh, to, for them to be able to offer to their members. All of their members predominantly are in the creative space. And they wanted to figure out a way to foster a little bit more interaction amongst their members um, because, you know, it, they, they frame it as a co-working space, but the reality is it's just a space that, that they share with other people in separate <laughs> companies, you know. Right, right. It's not like you work for Netflix and that you're all working for the same company. And so when you're, you know, you can, you, you, you're meeting them in, in, in different in, in, uh, environments and socially interacting with them. Like it doesn't really happen as often in, uh, in, in sort of co-working spaces. So we sort of put together a seminar, uh, a workshop seminar um, that was predominantly about the business of being creative, but it really sort of like presented in a series called Creative MBA a breakdown of the hard and soft skills that we feel are necessary for creative people to be able to be the, to, to, to grow their businesses and be successful. And so what it enabled us to do was participate in the Neuhaus environment, uh, be members ourselves, understand from a member perspective what was potentially missing from the experience of Neuhaus. And because we have a direct line to Neuhaus management, we can relay that and also give them kind of like feedback on how to improve their sort of uh, their retention of their members and really kind of like hone in on what people are looking for when they, um, you know, they pay a, a hefty monthly fee to work out of that space. And it's been, it's been really interesting. So interesting. I, you know, I, I think... It, that's fascinating to me, and I want to circle back on that in a little bit. Okay. But, but first, I think this is probably a good time to uh, start at the beginning. So you, you're both Stanford grads. Um, did you meet at Stanford? Only I am. Oh, I'm not a Stanford yeah. grad. No. You're, okay, Nathan, you are. Paul, did you, did you, you, didn't do any, you didn't go to Stanford at all? No, no. Well, I, I don't I'm think you did. Long. Sorry about that. No worries. I'm 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 originally from London. Um, oh, got, I, okay. I I I was a, a corporate lawyer in London. Got it. Okay. Um, so, where did you guys? Where did you both meet? And and why why this? Because you know what? Whenever you whenever you start something new, and this is really a novel concept for you because it's really interesting. I have, I have found over the years that creative types don't get a lot of business training. And there aren't a lot of outlets to provide business training to creative. It's that chicken and egg scenario. So I'm, I'm curious where, where you both met and, and why this, why now? Paul, do you want me to start? Yeah, go for it. So, um, I, you know, I, as you, as you saw, I, I went to Stanford and, and sort of took a, a financial career route after college, uh, worked at a couple of banks. But the, the types of clients that I was working with in my bank were all creative industry types. So I was part of a, a group that was um, uh, an entertainment and an art focused uh, banking group. And we had a lot of art galleries as our clients, a lot of film and television production companies as our clients. Um, and it was here in Los Angeles. And it was a really great way for me to sort of 
you know, figure out from a business perspective, what made these sort of creative businesses strong and healthy and which ones were not very strong and healthy. Um, and I ended up going to business school and, and sort of took a, another uh, crack at the financial industry on Wall Street and sort of left Wall Street to work on the corporate side of things. So I was at Warner Brothers for a bit and also Netflix. And when I left the corporate world to pursue my own entrepreneurial interests, um, I ended up syncing up with a really good friend of mine who was starting a furniture business in Los Angeles. And as you rightly sort of pointed out, you know, he was very talented, very creative, really good at you know, making and designing furniture. And what he lacked was real business skills. Like how do you figure out your go-to-market strategy? What is your sales channel? Are you a wholesaler? Are you a direct-to-consumer? He had just never thought of those things. And you know, it became very apparent that um, he was not unlike other creatives in the space who just don't have the resources to go to. Um, and these were skills that I sort of took for granted almost. This was kind of the, you know, the, the, the industry, the business and strategy and financial industry that I grew up with. Um, and to, to sort of lend him those skill sets was very valuable for both of us. And what it ended up doing was thrust me back into sort of the creative community in LA. And as I was working with him, other folks, mostly in the design and decor space, said, Nathan, I need help with my business. I need help understanding what my, my go-to market strategy is, or I need help raising money. I need to find a lender or an accountant or a lawyer that understands my business. And so over the course of a couple of years, um, you know, I ended up sort of organically creating a book of business within the creative space in Los Angeles. Um, and along the way, you know, sort of met Paul, who you know, was doing something sort of similar. And we both had the same kind of observation that there was really this, this dearth of resources for the creative community um, as an underserved kind of class that don't really have access to lawyers and, you know, financial analysts and, you know, that the whole kind of infrastructure that supports the, um, I would say, like more traditional businesses and industries, they just don't have those, those contacts and connections and networks. So, you know, Paul can kind of tell you a little bit about his background, but that's sort of, you know, the, the kind of way that we, we met and, and, and formed what, what's now Design Agency and Management. Um, yeah, so I, I'm originally from London. I uh, trained as a corporate lawyer. I worked on large um, structured finance transactions and had always wanted to work in the entertainment industry, but on the business side. So I, I literally quit my job and I moved out to LA and I was fortunate enough to um, land a, an internship, which turned into a, a full-time position at a very um, a, a sort of small finance and production, film finance and production company that grew very, very quickly over a short period of time. So I ended up sort of being an executive in entertainment um, at a company that I'd sort of seen grow from 12 people when I joined to 350 people when I left five or six years later. Um, and then I moved to another uh, entertainment company uh, in a sort of similar uh, vein, but a little bit smaller to, to, to help it grow. But um, for a number of reasons, uh, I grew disillusioned with entertainment. Um, the companies that I've worked for, both the original one and, and, and the, the second one, ended up going bankrupt, more as a marker of really what was happening in a, in a very sort of like changing landscape, uh, whereby, you know, people weren't going to see movies as much anymore in the theaters, the, the rise of organizations like Netflix and, stream, and other streamers, 
And I figured that I needed to transition a little bit so that I um, still had a career effectively. And I ended up consulting for a couple of other production companies to, you know, again, add that, that business lens to creative folks. And I ended up meeting a lot of other creatives who were in a very similar position. They had built incredible, um, you know, creative businesses and, they, you know, it was almost by, I don't want to say by luck, but they didn't have any sort of like business lens on their businesses. And they sort of got to the point whereby they needed to either raise some more money uh, or to grow their companies. And they didn't really know how to go about doing that. They sort of get, got to this impasse. Um, at the same time, I, I, um, I have a background in art and design. I come from three generations of folks that worked at Christie's Auction House. And so I'd sort of grown up with, with art and design and I, I saw a, a, a need in LA for a bit more of um, a, sort of an influx of contemporary design. So I actually opened up a small contemporary design gallery, which sort of introduced me to a lot of, lot of creatives that were makers, interior designers who would come in um, and, and other folks like that. And what became very apparent very quickly was that they, they also didn't have any support on the business side of things. And as much as I was sort of helping them to sort of sell their furniture, a lot of what I was really doing was offering them business advice. They would come to me and say, I'm negotiating a contract with a fabricator, can you help? Or what do you think about my pricing? Should, should it be this or that? Or I'm, I'm, someone's copied my work, which was actually kind of common. And, and I don't really know how to go about, you know, stopping them doing that. So because I'd sort of had all of this um, uh, kind of like, had been giving kind of a lot of this advice, I started to think about what a management consultancy and agency might look like um, that was similar to what I'd experienced in the entertainment industry, whereby, you know, anyone creative has, has an agent and a manager, you know, writers, directors, actors, fashion stylists, hairstylists, but there was nothing that really exists like that in, the particularly like the home decor space. And so I started to kind of like explore that. And that was how I got introduced to, to Nathan because someone that we both, you know, we, we're mutually friendly with um, sort of said you to both of us, you, you need to speak to, to Nathan and, and, and Nathan was told that he needed to speak to me. And that's kind of like how design agency management was born. Does, does it surprise you both that, so there's this, what I call the gap in the industry, okay? And the, to me, the gap is you've got on one side, you've got creatives who are incredibly talented and have absolutely no business savvy, no representation of any kind, no knowledge of intellectual property, let alone knowledge of how to protect their intellectual property. Then on the other side, there's this vast chasm between the two. And then on the other side, you have these creatives who understand what it is that they do. They're business-minded. And, and as I'm sort of explaining this to you, in my mind, I'm, I'm thinking of many of the, the creatives that I've interviewed over the past seven years that are on both sides of this. Does it surprise you? And why do you think this particular industry, like, like you said, Paul, you know, if, if you're an actor at any level, right? If you want to be in the business, you have representation. 
if if you're if you're if you have any talent or any any serious desire to be uh, in in major content production, you have representation. Why do you think, when it comes to interior design and architecture and and um, and product development as it relates to interiors? Why is there why is there this gap? Why does that gap exist? Well, I I have an opinion on it. I mean, I I think that what creative people have not done very well is articulate to the world their value of their creativity. And I think when you have a um, a group of interdesigners and makers who are trying to place a value on what what is the talent in their their head like what is that what is that worth and how do you monetize it they don't have the same sort of um, uh, infrastructure that like even doctors and dentists and engineers and lawyers there's like these cohorts of other industries that have done a very very good job of convincing the public that what they do and their work is really valuable and when you and, and even actors and and sort of like entertainment talent have a, they, they've got a, they've done a very very good job of um, convincing the public and their fans that their talent can be monetized in a way that I think necessitates an agent or management representative I think that there are some creatives who have realized that value and have probably done a very good job of either being very business savvy or having the right team of people that have helped them um, articulate that brand equity and monetize it in a way that has allowed them to be more successful and probably appear to be a, a bit more you know, business oriented. But that I think is probably you know, the exception and not the rule. I would say most creatives aren't as business savvy and don't have the same sort of um, you know, team around them to support them. And I think it really is due to the fact that they undervalue their own worth. And I think if they were, if they were able to um, sort of better tell their story, their brand story, and someone said, oh, you know, I'm, you know, you're, Mr. Interior Designer, you're charging me $125 an hour, you're actually worth $300 an hour. I think if there was this idea that, you know, the public could support the creative from a monetization perspective, they, they might realize that they actually need an agent, they need management, they need all that sort of stuff because the dollars at stake are much higher. But that's, that's my, one of my observations. I, you know, it's really interesting. Um, my my background's in broadcast, and it's funny we we all have a different background in in something other than where we are now. And I think that that brings a bit of institutional knowledge from from other industries. And when you bring institutional knowledge from other industries, you sort of have this you have a little bit of a crystal ball because if you process the information correctly, it's not it's not too difficult to be able to sort of predict where certain things are going to go. And it's really interesting because my, my background in broadcast, um, I, was the, I was the record rep for, music rep for a radio station in Dallas, an alternative station. And I got to learn so much about the, the music industry. Mm. And with the background in radio, I got to learn about the broadcast industry. One of the things that really surprised me, and I can see a correlation between this, is the music industry fought digital so hard that iTunes, you know, Apple comes in and basically takes over. Amazon comes in and basically takes over the distribution of their product. And they didn't even see it coming. Um, radio fought so hard to protect the signals 
that they get that are over the airwaves that they didn't see what was coming on the digital side or the satellite side, right? And then they lost a lot of their distribution. And I look, I, Nathan, to your point, I, I look at creatives now in the interior space and they never saw um, Laurel and Wolf. They mm-hmm. never saw yeah. the, the creation of, a, of a, an online service industry that does what they do, but does it for, you know, a fraction of what they charge for it. Yeah. I, I'm, and I, it's just staggering to see that happen. So to your point, I completely understand it. Now, the next question is, how do you sell value, not for what they do, but how do you sell the value for what you do to change the mindset of creatives who are so tr- traditionally used to going it on their own? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I think that the way, well, what, when, when Paul and I talk to potential clients or even existing clients about you know, what they think is missing from their business today, often you know, they come to us or we approach them because there's some sort of issue in their business, whether it's an organizational issue or um, a business development issue or a strategy issue. But more often than not, what they say is, you know, I, I, am, I run a business based on referrals as an interior designer, let's say. And, you know, this is a referral-based business. And up until this point, you know, the majority of my business has come from referrals. I sit behind the desk and I wait for the phone to ring. And I'm at a point where that's, that's worked up until, this, up until now, but I just, I'm a passive recipient of that phone call. I have no agency over my, where my next project is coming from. And I don't know how to build a pipeline of business. And so I think where we sort of are able to articulate our value is, look, we as an, as an agency, on the agency side of our business, we want to help you build that pipeline of opportunity. And so that you can, with confidence, say, here are the, the, the jobs I want to take. You know, here's my goals as an interior designer, creatively, professionally, and I want to be able to pick and choose the types of projects that will satisfy those goals and get me to where I want to be. And if you just sit behind your desk and wait for the phone to ring, you kind of have to say yes to every job, knowing that you don't know when the next one is going to materialize. So I think part of the way we can articulate our own value is we can help support not only the business side of your business and make sure that your operations are optimized, but we can also, knowing kind of what your goals and strategy is, we can help you funnel those opportunities and find the right projects that fit the goals and the needs of where you want to be. And I think that if, if, you know, once designers kind of realize that there may be a world where that phone stops ringing and they don't really have business development skills or they don't have the time to go out and network and do the cold calling and figure out, you know, who, who could be their next uh, client or project, um, you know, we, we, we can step in and help them funnel those opportunities. Yeah, I mean, just to piggyback on that, I think the other thing that we do is that we give our clients through analysis of their businesses and also any potential opportunity, we give our clients the license to be able to say no. And, And if they are inclined to say yes, we want to make sure that we are, because we step in and we negotiate for our clients. And because of what Nathan was saying earlier, sometimes 
creatives are either like not not convinced of their worth um, for 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 a variety of reasons, or they have an aversion to negotiation and asking for certain amount of money. We can step in and do that, and so we can articulate our value by saying, firstly, we can get you more money, you mm-hmm. know, just by by being that that person. Like we can we can sit in and negotiate with your, uh, with, you know, with your potential clients. But also we can say, look, I mean, if you th- this job is is if it's not a job that is going to be very interesting for you creatively, or it's not a job that you might do for a, a, a lower price because it will lead to other opportunities, whether through marketing or through referrals from this particular client, then, you know, maybe the job, the only reason that makes it interesting to you is if, if you're getting paid for it, for mm-hmm. in, 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 in a, in a, that's commensurate for the actual work and for your, for your value. So, you know, we, we sort of allow our clients to obviously think big picture about their businesses by helping them, kind of like analyze their, their own organizations. But on a project by project basis, we sort of, we, we position that project so that they are comfortable if they don't get it effectively. And, they, and, and more importantly than that, that if they do get it, they don't resent it because they're not getting paid what they should be getting paid for it. So we find ourselves in 2020 in a very interesting place where just about every aspect of life has has changed yes and i'm and i'm curious as you as you look sort of we're we're relatively just past midpoint of the year right we're about midpoint hopeful you know where where i would imagine we are to getting back to some semblance of of normality what do you think has been forever changed by this experience as, as it relates to the business itself, as it relates to what, to what you do, because everybody's business has changed. And when there's dramatic change, it's usually the planners, the developers, the, the thinkers of strategy who, who wind up best positioned for what's next. So I'm, I'm curious, what are you telling your clients? Where, what do you think, what are you telling your prospects? What do you think has been forever changed by this experience as it relates to the business and where do you take advantage of it? Uh, how, how long is this? How long is this? Going? As long <laughs> as you want it to be. <laughs> I mean, I, I can start. I'm, I'm sure Nathan's got a, a, a lot of ideas as well. I mean, without sort of stating the obvious, I think that this, this concept of working from home is going to be forever impactful on the way that uh, people live their lives, um, the way that companies set up their offices, the way that communities get built um, around the country. Um, and I, I, can, I can sort of talk to you a little bit about all of those things. I mean, I think that, you know, we're actually seeing now um, uh, our, our clients in the home space particularly, they, they're actually doing okay, you know, um, you know, people are obviously at home a lot and they're realizing that that's not going to change anytime soon. So they want to make their environment the best that they possibly can make it. So maybe they're doing some work that they had planned to do for, for a long time, but they just didn't get around to it. Or they want to bring in um, 
you know, a new sofa or they want to, you know, rearrange a, a room or they want to create a, a home office. And so I think that a lot of people are going to want to maximize their experience at home with the best that they can, uh, in the best way that they possibly can. And that extends to things like, I want to have the best coffee machine in my house. You know, I, I want to have the best sound system. And um, so I think it, 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 that's a really interesting thing. But I think that it also means that, um, you know, people are going to want to have, have a little bit more space. And so people that were tied to certain areas, particularly like city centers, because they had to go to an office every single day, that might change if it means they only have to go in two or three times a week. And so they might move a little bit further away to get a bigger, bigger space, um, which might mean that the communities around the, the sort of the suburb, shall we say, are going to be really interesting and, and evolving. You know, we're going to probably see, uh, you know, really nice coffee shops pop up um, or nice sort of fashion boutiques or really like, you know, improved restaurants because people that are used to getting that, those types of amenities in the city center, if they're going to be moving out of the city centers and spending more time at home, they're still going to want to have that same experience just a little bit nearer to where they have moved to. Hey, Paul, Paul, I totally get that. And I, and I completely agree with you. What I'm, what I'm curious about, I, I think that, that the way people live, the manner in which, in which we live, work, and play has forever changed. Uh, I think it's, it's dramatically changed. What I'm curious about is the clients themselves of yours. So yeah. from the industry standpoint, industry inside out, how does the business of design, how does the business, the, what, what you're catering to, how you're advising your clients, how has that changed? Um, and I, I'll give you a couple of examples. You know, with everybody being home and working from home, the clients, not your clients, but, but the, the designers' clients, the architects' clients, the, the buyers of, of material, you know, their home has completely changed. But the manner in which, you know, going down to a design center and shopping for a piece of furniture is not now what it was in February. Yeah. yeah. I'm curious, how are you talking to your clients, your prospects, the clients that you want to sign up? How has the business changed for them? So, I mean, it's interesting you bring up the showrooms because yeah. I think that the showroom side of thing is something that, you know, having been in that position myself and, and knowing that, you know, clients in general are more comfortable purchasing online, spending a lot more money online and um, than, than they've ever been before. And obviously you've got this sort of the growth of things like first dibs. You know, I think that showrooms these days are, in a, are finding themselves in a very interesting position. And something that we've discussed with a number of our clients is the, um, you know, it, 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 it's, it's still along this theme of, of, of taking agency, right? And we feel that, you know, people that are selling products, particularly in the home space, they can do it so much easier than they've ever been able to do, which is obviously through Instagram or social media, and they can reach audiences that way. They obviously have their own websites, but they've traditionally relied on showrooms to make sales for them. So what we've, what we've discussed with a number of our clients is actually forming like coalitions amongst our clients to create an in-house sales team that actually services them exclusively and taking advantage of the fact that 
design, interior designers aren't going out to purchase furniture in the same way. They're not going out to showrooms. Do they want to be going to a showroom and, and handling, you know, 200 different samples with what's going on in the world right now? Um, and we sort, of, we sort of see that there is a world that, um, you know, it's almost like going back to the old school. You know, if you have an in-house sales team that uh, has a, an outside sales rep that actually goes out on the road, and goes to visit some of the designers, builds relationships that way, presents the samples uh, in, in their own environment, we sort of see a real kind of way for our clients to not only um, build their sales that way, but also build relationships. And we, we've created an ecosystem amongst our clients. So because we represent interior designers, um, fabric designers, furniture designers, lighting designers, 3D renderers, landscape architects, um, you know, general architects, they're all working together now. And that's where we see the real value of what we do. And it's, it's, we see the, the future of representation that way, not confined to a physical space. And, and just to sort of like, you know, dovetail off of what, what Paul is saying about, you know, these clients that we have that we're, you know, we're sort of advising um, on pivoting their business model. I mean, we've, we've taken a collective of clients within the same industry that are on the surface, you know, competitors with one another. Um, they're in the same space. And we've basically convinced them and advised them to form a collective that can share resources um, they can share sales infrastructure and to leave their showrooms that they are represented by and come together and collaborate and navigate, you know, the challenging times as a unit um, rather than as, you know, separate competitors. And I think when, when Paul and I did some research on, you know, who were the winners and losers of the last economic downturn of 2008, you know, what, what we really saw was, you know, the, the, the brands that emerged stronger out of that downturn were brands that recognized that there was already change happening in their space. And rather than sort of indiscriminately slashing expenses, slashing operating costs, they actually um, spent more money and leaned into that change and, inv and invested through that downturn. Um, and, and they weren't necessarily prescient. They were just able to recognize that there were some sort of changes already afoot in, the, in their industry. Um, and back then it was like e-commerce and digitalization and all that sort of stuff. And I think today, you know, we already saw amongst some of our clients that there was this issue with, you know, both designers in the trade, as well as makers having a bit of a, um, a tense relationship with their showrooms that represent the, the makers. And, you know, showrooms, I think, as Paul said, were in this position where they were really struggling to, to articulate their own value to both, you know, designers who go shop there and to the makers they represent. And they charge a huge commission for not doing that much work. And so what we decided to do was to recognize that there was this change happening and you know, sort of take advantage of it and kind of take our clients out of the safe harbor of their showroom representation and go at it on our own and bring sales in-house. And the only way we could really do that from a budgetary perspective was to form a collective that could share a sales resource. So we're, we're, we're trying out this new model, which is a pretty dramatic shift from the business model that they're all used to, um, but we think it's really the right move and gives them way more agency over where their next sales are coming from. So are you, are you a rep? 
Is that part of the service? No, we're not a rep. But what we've done is we've basically helped these um, these these designers, these these brands find and source a uh, a sales rep for them. So okay. they've collectively hired someone, and we've helped them interview and help them put a job description together and help set sales goals and all that sort of stuff on the back end of things. But we're you know us as design agency management aren't hiring the sales rep. Although we certainly see in the future where that could be part of you know our service, and we're going to see how this goes. And you know this was a collective of people in the same space, but we can imagine that we could have a sales rep that we hire that reps, you know, a lighting designer and a ceramics designer and a textile designer and a rug company. And they can you know, use that sort of sales model um, as kind of like a, a mini multi-line showroom. Um, but we're, we're going to test this out and see how it works. But certainly there's room to evolve that model going forward. So I'm curious, how do you, I, I, I want to drill down on this a little bit because I'm curious as to how you do that. You know, when, when, when the, the idea of, of formalized design first started, you know, especially in cities like LA, you know, you would have the department stores where they would have all the lines and then they would have three or four in-house designers. And if you wanted design in your home, you would go to the department store and you'd look at the, whatever furniture line they had and you'd look at whatever textiles and window coverings and whatever you wanted. It was at the department store. You got it. They would, it was a full service agency. Then we had this, 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 uh, these design districts popped up, right? You know, you look at here in LA and you've got the West Hollywood design district, you know, Beverly and Robertson where design really started in earnest here in Southern California. And then you, you've got the Pacific Design Center and you've got Laguna and you've got, you've got all kinds of, you've got SoCo and, and uh, the OC Mix. Now, be, because the idea of the showroom, and it's a little scary, isn't it? Because you've, you've got dedicated showrooms that have dedicated lines and now you're sort of talking about changing the way it's done. But with that requires a, a certain number of boots on the street to, 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 get, to get to the point where you've got enough business coming in and enough representation in the marketplace. How do you scale that? Yeah, I mean, I think that what we've, what we've come to recognize is that you know, the showrooms provided a lot more infrastructure than just purely a sales channel. Like they have, you know, showrooms have an entire marketing strategy. They've got um, their own kind of social media machine. They've got their own PR. They've got an entire set of, you know, marketing and sales and business development infrastructure that we would have to duplicate and replicate somehow in-house. And that's, that's hard to do when you've got what we've hired as like a single person to, um, to essentially like road rep these, this collective of, of brands. And I think that what we've sort of all dis discussed as a team is that while, while the showrooms certainly provide a, a lot of value, the biggest value and where we get repeat sales really is through the relationships that the brands themselves have with the, the tr their trade clients. And those relationships, um, you can scale relationships quite easily. And I think today more than ever, when brands can have relationships directly with 
the trade clients or architects and don't have to go through a showroom, you know, through social media, through mailers, through digital marketing strategies, um, it's a lot easier to scale your, um, your contacts, your outreach, your networking, when you've got these digital platforms that help you do it. Back in the day when you had to handwrite notes and you had to hand deliver samples and all that sort of stuff, it's harder to scale that type of outreach. But I think that the technology today exists to where it's a lot easier of a, you know, for a single owner of a, of a textile brand as an entrepreneur to reach out to 100 designers over the course of two weeks. It's very, very easy for them to do. So scaling the outreach is sort of an easy thing. I think where we're going to probably find some challenges is how do you scale the fulfillment and the supply chain that goes along with the increase in business that, you know, once that a showroom was doing for you. You know, I think that for us, that's a good problem to have if we get to that point and we have to, you know, hire more people to, to do fulfillment and production. That's great. Let's, let's first build the like sales infrastructure and get the business in and we'll react and, and figure out how to, how to scale the, the production fulfillment side. I don't know, Paul, if you have anything to add to that. No, I mean, like this is a, this is a test for us. And um, I think that we are seeing how it goes in California and we're already exploring other other regions um, and sort of setting up these little pockets of, of um, folks that can kind of do this in, in, in other parts of the country where maybe they don't even have a showroom right now, you know? Right. Um, and, I, and, and I think that what we definitely sort of realize is that, is that you know, we, we have a couple of retail clients as well. Like the world is global now. I mean, like it, the, 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 the audience is global. And so I think that, you know, because technology enables you to reach such a wider audience that we are, we are figuring out a way to sort of um, capitalize on that and uh, are using th this California, um, uh, you know, collective as a, as, a, as a testing ground for expansion sort of effectively nationally and then it will be international. I think it's interesting too, you know, you talk about showrooms and if, if you're in, you know, I don't know the state of design in North Dakota, you know, but yeah. I, I'm, I'm pretty safe in assuming that there's no major design center there, right. you know? Right. Um, I, I think that, you know, you'd be hard pressed in the Midwest to, to find a place where you can see a major brand's entire line. Or, or, you know, the newest thing from Italy or some of the new products from Germany, you know, it's, it's going to be a challenge, right? It's, or even some of the, some of the, the, the maker products from, from LA or New York or, or Austin, Texas. And because of that design has, you know, at least in the media, so the perception, right, has always focused on Miami and New York and oh. LA and San Francisco. So I, 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 I see the, I see the logic in the model, and I think it also makes sense to look at, at California and see how you can scale it. So, you know, the, the question now is, how do, you, how do you provide all of the services, and how do you advise clients to sort of, you know, I, I feel like time management really is probably one of the most important things, because these companies are small, right? Yeah. They're, and, and most of them spend... And I think you would probably agree to this. They spend way too much time 
on their social media and not enough time on their brand development. So talk to me about the, the services offered and sort of how you, how you work with brands to help them strategize, develop that book of business, and then scale up their, their product at the same time. It sounds like you've also got this collaborative approach with the other clients that you work with. So I'm curious, how do you, how do you speak to the individual clients and, and build the brand? Well, I think, you know, when we sit down and start working with a client on strategy, oftentimes like the deliverable that we are tasked with, with giving in our scope of services is like a fully fledged like business model. And so with that comes a financial, like a financial forecast as well. And so what we'll do is we will look at every aspect of that business from its operations and organizational structure to hiring practices, to the marketing and business development side of things and literally put together a, a, a business plan that kind of calendars out, here are the key strategic priorities that you as the business owner need to do over the course of this month, this month, this month, this month. And here is a, um, a forecasted financial model that sort of, that sort of um, is the result of uh, the execution of this strategy. And what we'll do is once we've given them and delivered this business plan and a financial model, we will have regularly scheduled, usually like monthly or quarterly updates with our clients to see, okay, well, you know, here's what we had set out strategically for you to do over the last 30 days. Like, how have you done? Have you done this? Have you, have you contacted your five new potential clients per week? Have you sent your, um, your monthly newsletter? Have you, you know, posted on social media as like you said, you were going to, have you done all these sort of things? And then we'll also marry that with looking at their profit and loss statements. So we'll say, okay, well, here's the budget we set for this month or this quarter. How did you do relative to the budget we sent? Where are their deltas? And on the revenue side, did you hit our goals or not and why? And I think as we have these sort of regular checkpoints with our clientele, we can very easily pivot the strategy and we can set a strategy, see if it worked and monitor it, benchmark it, and then pivot as needed. But that's sort of, you know, the, the kind of roadmap that we'll set for our clients, which keeps them honest. I mean, a lot of the times it's sort of like having a, um, a trainer for you. It's like you go to the gym. I know what I need to do, but having a trainer there telling me and giving me the benchmarks, making sure that I'm on the progress, it's the same kind of thing. We kind of, you know, help our clients um, keep honest to what they said they were going to do. And, you know, once the strategy is sort of laid out and set, it's more about maintenance and, and kind of keeping them, like I said, honest to their own strategy. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, it, it all starts with the, the business plan mm -hmm. and really like what Nathan and I try and do is really understand not only what are the sort of professional goals of our clients, but also their personal goals. And quite often what we've discovered is that when we speak to some of our clients and we ask them kind of like what, what they want to do with their businesses and, and it can, it, it, it's all different. I mean, someone might say, I want to, I want to do this for the next 50 years or I want to sell my business in five years time, or I want to uh, focus on doing the creative side of things, but I want to have, you know, 25 employees, whatever it may be. Or, and quite often what they say is um, I've never articulated this before. Yeah. I've never told anyone that this is what my goal is. And so once they kind of express that, it gives us 
the ability to then really understand, to really understand what they want to achieve. You know, sometimes they say, I want to buy a house or I want to spend more time with my family, you know, like it, it's all very different. So we try and then tailor our business plans for them to help them achieve that. And once, once they have this framework that, that they believe in that, and, and a strategy that they can, um, uh, that they can follow and goals that they, that they know now are achievable, as Nathan was saying, it's just about then, keeping them on that, on that pathway. But it all starts with really kind of like understanding what they want to achieve with their businesses and with their, their personal lives as well. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would just say like, if someone came to us and said, <clears throat> I want to grow my business over the next couple of years, and then I want to start a family and be uh, a parent and just sell my business, that's a very different strategy than someone who says, I want to I build a sustainable brand that I can run as a single entrepreneur until I'm 65 years old. You know, that's like a very different plan and different strategy. So really to Paul's point, understanding, you know, what those goals are for people really sets kind of where, you know, how we start. And we're always starting at A and we try to get to Z, but getting to Z has many pathways. And part of our job is to analyze each one of those pathways as they come and figure out what are the pros and cons, what are the, you know, the gives and takes of each of those paths we could pursue and present those to our clients and help make an informed decision based on some sort of analysis that we undertake. And Josh, you said something very interesting earlier uh, in this conversation where you were pointing to some of the folks that you've interviewed and, um, you know, some of the more successful ones have both the creative and they have the, the business savvy. And, and when we speak to some of our clients, it's really interesting when you ask them, you know, who they, um, you know, what, what sort of company that they, they want to, to build or, or what of the, who of their contemporaries do they want to emulate? it's really interesting who they pick. Yeah. And then when you, when, you know, it, it, it's often someone like Kelly Wurstler or it's, you know, Philip Stark or it, it's someone very, very successful. And when you break down how that person achieved their success and what they had to sacrifice or what they did, it's very interesting to see the changes in faces of some of the clients when they realize what they actually had to go through um, to, to, to get to that point. And sometimes they, they sort of, even in this conversation, they say, actually, that's not what I want right. to be doing. You know? right. And also it's very easy to point at those successful people and be like, I want to be like that person. When, you know, some people do have that innate ability to market themselves really well, to build a business, to be creative. And we, we, we are there to fill in those blanks. Everyone can achieve that, but we're there to sort of like fill in the, in, in the blanks for them. So yeah, it's, 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 um, it's really interesting. And we, we love, we love sort of like that part of the, of the business. Mm -hmm. it, it's funny. And I, I think this is, you know, this is probably the best place to wrap up because, um, you know, it totally makes sense when you talk about being a trainer. Sometimes it's taking it, you know, when someone goes to a trainer, you're going to a gym, obviously you want certain results and you don't necessarily know what your full potential is. You just know that you haven't been pushed enough. It hasn't meant enough to you. You haven't found the right direction or the right motivation or the right, you know, injection of energy to get you to the point where you need to be. And, and oftentimes success is required, you know, 
guidance is required to, to achieve that success that you're looking for. And so you guys really are your, your trainers, your, your business trainers, but also your coaches as well, right? So you're, you're, you, it sounds like you're building an internal team, but it's not dependent. It's a, what is it? It's, a, it's an individual sport within a team concept. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. We're, it, we're also, we're, we're advisors, you know, it's like there's oftentimes our clients are, you know, single entrepreneurs or single, you know, single owners of businesses. And, you know, you can only talk to your partner or your friends so much about your business issues. And so, you know, we also kind of act as like business therapists in a way, you know, like running ideas by them and, and being a soundboard for, you know, advice. I mean, that, that is valuable too. I think when I was doing this on my own before I met Paul, it's kind of lonely. You know, I mean, it, you know, I, I was kind of like flying by the seat of my pants and I always told my clients like, do as I say, not as I do. Cause I, was sort of, had, no, I had no plan, no strategy. I was just sort of meandering through. Um, and it's been really nice to have someone like Paul as my business partner where we can, you know, bounce ideas off of each other and collaborate. And, you know, we, we act as that kind of board level sound, you know, soundboard for our, our clients as well, you know, cause everyone needs someone to just run an idea by. Yeah. And I think just to wrap up on that, um, you know, for a lot of our clients, in fact, pretty much all of them, their businesses, it's not only their sort of like creative passion, but it's often their biggest asset. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they put more money into this than they put into anything else. And it needs to be protected. And, and we don't want, we want to bring the enjoyment back to our clients because the reason why they got into it is because they're creative and they're good at something. And that's what their clients are hiring them for. If they if it ends up that they end up doing all of the stuff that they actually don't really enjoy, they don't get any enjoyment out of their, their own companies anymore. And at that point, what, what is the point of, of having a company? So we try and enable our clients to get back to doing what they really started their companies to do and help them hopefully um, grow their businesses. So from a financial perspective, they can have a comfortable life and provide for their families at the same time. Absolutely. This was perfect. Paul, Nathan, guys, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us on. It's really great. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Walker Zanger. And thank you for listening and subscribing to Convo by Design. My hope is to bring you inspiration and sublime design through these conversations to give you that extra push to be the most creative designer you can be. I think we did that here. I hope so anyway. Please make sure you are subscribing to the show so you don't miss a single episode. You can also follow us on Instagram at Convo by Design with an X and ConvoByDesign.com. Be well. And remember, take today first. (laughs) 